surprising in my surroundings. I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And this episode is brought to you by Prevenex. Prevenex is a supplement brand that I trust for all things. I take their their uh, their pack every day. Basically, there's five different supplements that I take. The multivitamin, the probiotic. I got the omega in there as well. And one of the ones that I love is the Joint Plus. That one is so huge for me as someone who's now getting a little bit older. It's my birthday in two days and someone who's had some joint pain recently. That's the one that I love and that's the one that so many runners have really gravitated towards. So you should do so as well because Prevenex not only has the highest standards, they have the highest source ingredients and they test all the way through. Go to Prevenex.com and use code RUNNER15. That's RUNNER15 to save today and today's episode. Oh, before we get into it, let me just say, got a lot of fun things coming up on the Rambling Runner podcast feed and Road to the Olympic Trials. I just put out our uh, conversation with Jared Ward that we had the Houston Marathon, put that out today on the Olympic Trials feed. On Monday, I'm going to put out the podcast with Alexi Pappas and Molly Huddle. That was a really fun one as well. Also, soon, this is a call to action for all Rambling Runner listeners. Soon we're going to do a new episode, kind of like our Funny Stories episode that we did in the past. We have three different versions of that. We're going to do another one. But this one's going to be about, instead of just funny running stories, it's going to be about those blow-up races or workouts that we've done in the past, those extreme blow-ups that we've had. Uh, and then also, if you have a little, little silver lining to the story, that's great, too. I'm doing it with Dorothy Beal. You may know her from I Run This Body and Mile Posts are her and her, her signature Instagram handles. And she has so many people who follow her and for so many good reasons. But she's also a ton of fun. And we're really excited to do this. So send us your best stuff, man. No need to wait. Email me, ramblingrunnerpodcast at gmail.com. That's ramblingrunnerpodcast at gmail.com. We're going to choose the best ones, read them on air, and have a little fun discussing each of them. So today's episode is with Melissa Perlman. Melissa is a 249 marathoner who has really whittled her way down to that point. She started marathoning later in life because she basically took a 10-year break from running. She was a very successful high school runner, recruited to run by some of the best schools in the country, got to college, and stopped running for a whole 10 years. And we dive into all the reasons why some some, you know, some running related and some not running related. And then how she got back into it and how she transitioned to the marathon and all the things that she's been able to do in a very short period of time, which seeing how she's progressed, I think we can take a lot from uh, what she's been able to do as someone who, you know, she's roughly my age as well. And you know, we're it's funny, man. I turned 39 in 2 days. So we uh, we had a little fun with the age game on this episode. So with all that being said, here is my podcast with Melissa Perlman. Hello, Melissa, and welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Hey, it's my pleasure. Actually, we were just talking offline before we got started, and you were telling me how you were one of the people who are actually watching the end of uh, the Houston Marathon this past weekend, and actually one of the people who are actually following my 
awkward, I'm sure, live streaming at the finish line <laughs> because you actually had a friend who just barely got under the Men's Olympic Trials qualifying time. That must have been pretty exciting to witness. Yeah, I had a, actually a really exciting um Olympic trial qualifier witnessing weekend. On Saturday, I had a female friend qualify in a race in Georgia, the aviation marathon, and then um, Adriana, and then a male friend, Nick French, who qualified uh, at Houston. So that was pretty exciting. And he ran a 218.40 or 41. So he was right there. Yeah. That's wild. Now, Now, you get people who are that close to the line you kind of get people who are kind of in different groups, right? You get the people who know that going in, right? Like, all right, if I'm like, if I don't hit this 100% perfectly, this might not go my way. And then you have other people who are like, all right, I have some margin for error here, you know, so let's not go out too hot. And what, 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 what categories were your friends in? So both of them were right on the edge that they had both run um, marathons, uh, multiple this year already, um, CIM and Indy, and didn't have the races either they wanted or were, you know, seconds away and just wanted to go after it again. So they were, you know, targeting those exact mile times, mile after mile. Um, so it was pretty exciting to see it. And different than the way I've gone about the marathon in my own life that I've never sort of gone in with that target time. So it was cool watching them and their process and having them reach it and really inspiring for me to do the same. Yeah. Well, I, you know, just like you and so many others, I'm sitting there with the live tracker app and I'm refreshing it constantly, basically like killing, you know, for me, I was on my phone, not a computer. So I'm just killing my battery and, you know, I'm sure racking up crazy, crazy, um, you know, dollars on my phone bill that will be forthcoming. And it's just, <laughs> it's just so wild. Cause you sit there and you're like, I'm more nervous right now than if I was running. Because you you've you've no control, you're witnessing it, and you just keep trying to project. Like, can I read anything into these splits? And of course, you can't. But you're trying to the whole time. Exactly. You like can't see it, and you're trying to support in your own way, reaching out to friends, and yeah, it's uh, you just have to wait. It's uh, stressful. And this is why they have to like at some point come up with like like you know, basically like a drone equivalent of the, of the, of the tracker, right? You get like, like, all right, my friend is flying a drone over me. So like all the people who want to watch me can watch this. Obviously, like, I'm sure there would be quite a few issues with this, but like some version of this where you can like, instead of live tracking, you could have like each person can have like a camera remotely on them. So, you know, you can kind of track them and, and all that stuff. Sort of. And get a sense of like how they look. Oh, their arms are falling. Oh, their head is nodding. Yeah. Right. You're like, oh no, they just dropped a gel. It's only mile six, but that's going to matter later. Yeah. Or something like that. So you have, you have such an interesting story as well. No, you're not someone who's qualified for the Olympic trials, but you're not far away. You have a 249 uh, marathon time and you know, that's not why you're on here today. So, I, but I am excited to talk to you just about that journey because like so many people who have come on this podcast, you know, your path to this point in your running career is not linear in any sense. It's kind of like mountain peak and then down. Now you're, cl- you're getting close to like another mountain peak. So let's just, let's start at the beginning because unlike some people where a chronological look at their running career kind of misses the point, I think for you, it doesn't. I think it dovetails nicely with your story. So let's dive into it. When did you first realize that you were talented as a runner? 
So I played soccer growing up, like many will say, and I always had speed out there. Um, my dad is a former Penn State um, track guy, 400-meter guy, went to nationals. So I always knew I had some of that speed, uh, but it wasn't really until high school that I got into running competitively. Um, my freshman year, I went out for cross country to get in shape for soccer thinking, and I ended up you know, never going back to soccer and sticking with cross country and track. Um, I just gradually got better throughout cross country. We had a, the coach there, um, coach Rick Rothman, he had a really good championship program and I sort of just learned from those in front of me and, um, got faster year by year. Um, and where were you at this point? Like what, what high school were you at in what state? In, I was at Spanish River High School in Boca Raton, Florida. So South Hot Florida. <laughs> well, the reason I ask is because, you know, if you, you know, say, say you were at my high school growing up and, you know, we're, we're basically one or two years apart from each other, you wouldn't have, you would have been able to make that decision because at a lot of schools, soccer and cross country are the same season. Ah, yeah. So, so, um, soccer's in the winter in Florida. Oh. Instead of the fall. Okay. Yeah. Got it. So you never played high school soccer then? No, I like played JV my freshman year for a couple of weeks, but really wasn't, you know, wasn't in it. Like I thought I was, I thought that was going to be my future and just cross country was, you know, running, you get control of your outcome. You don't have to depend on a coach putting you in or decisions like that. And you really are in charge of your own destiny. And I really like that. And, um, it was, we were winning. We won, uh, cross-country states uh, um, as a team my freshman year. And, you know, you sort of get addicted to that feeling. I was like, I want more of this. Um, so really was brought up in a really good program. Uh, funny enough, I never, in all of my high school years, um, you know, my teammates would sort of, you know, laugh about it. I was competitive beyond competitive. I gave 100% at practice, but I didn't love that distance running. Like it wasn't like the weekends I looked forward to going out and running for 45 minutes or whatever we had. I really loved running for the competitiveness and, um, you know, for racing and winning and would do anything I could to be at my best in races and competition. But it wasn't like I had that love for true, you know, distance running at that point. So did you make one of those decisions that so many high schoolers make of like, okay, I just want to choose my best sport? Probably was. I mean, yeah, it was, I was good at it and, um, I, and I liked winning. Yeah. So probably soccer fell to the side because I had more talent, probably natural talent at running and saw that I could put in work and I was improving and having fun with it. Yeah. So that was, you know, so unlike so many others, there wasn't like some sort of middle school cross country team that you'd been a part of. So during your freshman year, at what point, so whether it was, you know, running with your teammates or at certain races, can you pinpoint, you know, that moment or moments when it started to crystallize in your mind, like, wow, like not only am I pretty good, I'm like, you know, this is something that I can first see myself doing for a while simply because I am successful at this, even without a whole lot of initial training. Yeah. So my, um, 
my freshman year track. So cross country, you know, you're, I was new to it. So I was getting better each race. And then I came out in track and all of a sudden was finishing like first or second in my, um, in the 800 and the mile, those were the races that I was doing and competing with the top girls on the team who were state champions. Um, so all of a sudden I was sort of like in that league, um, and training with them and going with them. Um, so I knew it sort of clicked in that freshman year track season. Um, and then when I came back for sophomore year cross country, um, that's when I had sort of established myself as number two to my teammate. Um, she was number one in the state in cross country. And I was sort of right there behind her in every race and just hooked onto her. Um, and that was where like the transition sort of happened where I was like, okay, this is, um, I'm in the top, you know, top two or three at States. Um, and let's go from here and keep getting better. And that's when I started realizing that I had sort of real potential to, you know, to keep improving and, um, and seeing where it could take me. So with that being said, during your high school career, did you have a specific event that you were more, um, you know, decorated in than any other? Um, I always thought I was a miler. I like didn't want to, um, I did the 800 and the mile until I think my junior year. And then at the very end of junior year track, um, we switched from the 800, um, to the mile and the two mile, just because I thought I had more potential in that. And I was getting used to going further in distance. Um, and then by the time I was a junior and, uh, my junior year in track, I won, uh, the state championship for the mile or the 1600 and the 3200. Um, so those sort of became my specialty areas. And then, um, but the mile was, or the 1600 was my probably true love, I guess, through my, my one regret in high school was that I couldn't go under five minutes. I never broke five in the, in the mile. I was close a lot of times. So how does the state championship work in Florida? Obviously, there's so many levels and so many schools and the state's enormous. So how does that work? Is it, is it, is it open, open division or do you kind of stay within a certain like school size? Yeah, they say they do it by school size. So it goes from like 1A. Now it's 1A to 4A, I think. Um, at that point, it was like 1A to 6A. Um, and you basically compete against um, people within your same school size. And I was Spanish River... We had um, about 3,000 kids in our high school. So it was a big high school. So we were in the largest group. Now, who were the, some of the, like, did you have peers of yours that you were racing who maybe just the, the common running fan would know of at this point? Um, in my, like Mason Kathy, she ended up going to UF and doing well. Um, Hillary White was another top one. Um Sarah Darling was my teammate who went to Alabama. Um, no one that like now, the, um, no one from my school or my exact grades that went on more in the, like, the 400, um, probably shorter distances. They made it like we had some Erica Whipple. Um, we had a bunch of like sprinters that ended up making it. Sonia Richards. Oh, of course. Everyone. Knows her name. Yeah. yeah. Sonia Richards Ross. <laughs> I mean, that's a, an icon. Yeah. <laughs> But I wasn't running against them. Yeah, they were a little shorter distance. But even the people you were running against, you know, these were high major Division One athletes um, that you were competing against. When you talk about Florida, especially large school Florida sports, I mean, every single sport's at a high level once you get to that size. Yeah, no, definitely. And like the Shepard, um, 
girls, they all run now and, and are fantastic and are still running. And they were at a private school in Boca Raton. So they were in this area. So there were, you know, there are once in a while you get people that really make it to that next level. Florida is also hard because it's, you know, you get a lot of sprinters since it's so warm here and it's for training, um, for distance, you know, we don't have many hills. Um, you're running on, you know, sidewalks and or roads because there aren't many trails um, and it's hot. So it's, um, it's funny how you don't, at the national level, a lot of times you're lacking a huge um, Florida presence in high school at least. So when you were coming down to make your final decision from a college perspective, how much did running play a part in that choice? So I knew, um, I knew that for some reason I knew I wasn't going to be a professional runner. So I wanted to go to the best school possible. So it became like um, a mission of mine to get into a high academic school as well as one that I could run at. And um, so when I started looking at colleges and it wasn't really until my senior year fall. So it was like later on in the process um, I started looking and the Ivy league schools were interested. And then the Florida schools were interested and um, I decided to go um, Ivy league. So I was, um, I visited UPenn and Columbia and Brown um, and then decided on Brown after my visit and they had a they finished ninth in the um, at NCAA's the year before, so they had a top cross country team. Um, and academically, you know, it was the best school that I could get into, and um, and really wanted to set myself up for you know success in career and and life. So you just mentioned that you knew you weren't going to be a professional runner. And yet you're looking at these schools where the vast majority of people who are going there as runners look probably thinking to themselves, if I'm a recruited athlete at a top 10 school in the country, and I'm from talking about athletics, uh, not just academics from this perspective, right? They're one of the top teams in the country and I'm being recruited there. Then there's a shot that I'm going to be a pro that maybe just maybe I can be a pro. So you didn't have that feeling per se. So what did you have, if any, from a goal perspective uh, going into college in regards to your running? Yeah, I guess going into college, I wanted to, I wanted to keep improving and I wanted to keep, um, doing well like I had in high school. Um, but I think, um, and, and we'll get to this when we talk about my college experience running, but I just didn't, I was lacking that like love for running that I have now. And I think in, you know, high school, it was sort of, it fit in easily with, um, with lifestyle and that kind of thing. And I was competitive and I maybe didn't have to do all those, you know, crazy mental extras and like focus and all that kind of stuff that it takes to get to that next level in college. And I don't think I was, um, it's a weird thing to say now, but I don't think I was mature enough or mentally prepared enough to do that in college. Um, yeah, I could say that I wanted to be the best that I wanted to be, but I think that I just, um, um, it takes a, it takes a level and a, a level of commitment and a level of, um, you know, dedication to it that I can say now that I 100% have, but looking back in that college, I, I just, it, it wasn't, um, it wasn't there strangely enough. Right. And, and I think that's like what you just said is a, is so important is that so many people in so many areas of life will say the phrase, I want to be as good as I can be, but 
every time someone says that, there's a second half of that sentence that doesn't get said. And that is like within the structures that I set up for myself, right? So for some people, that's like, I want to be as good as I can be. And that means within, I can't run more than an hour a week because I have family obligations. Or like, I want to be as good as I can be, but, you know, I don't, you know, I, I also want to play two other sports, right? Or like, exactly. I want to be as good a runner as I can be, but I'm not willing to take performance enhancing drugs, right? So there's exactly. all of these different levels and things that can come into play. So let's talk about, you know, you, you're going into Brown and being someone who plays a fall sport is really great for the college transition because it basically means that you go into a, the college level with kind of like a ready-made social group, right? That's like one of the great things about being a college athlete, especially someone who competes in the fall because you get there on campus before all the other freshmen, before all the other students besides the other fall athletes, and you really have a bonding time with your friends or soon-to-be friends. You also are going to be knee-deep in training camp from a running perspective. So let's talk about that. How did you prepare for your freshman year, and what was it like when you got to campus? And not only are you here you know, competing with some of the best runners in the world you know, at that, at that age group, but you're also running, you know, I'm, I'm a Rhode Islander. I know what the east side of Providence looks like. It's extremely hilly. I'm sure you were doing a, a completely different <laughs> set of trails and things like that than you normally do. So what was that adjustment like? Um, it was hard. I mean, I college in general was a hard adjustment for me. Um, I went in and had ready for camp, new people coming in that had been recruited as well. We were all writing each other during the summer. Um, so socially wise, I was good. Um, but I wasn't, yeah, I probably wasn't physically prepared to the, um, to the level that you need to at a college, at a college degree. It's a big change from high school, especially if you're, you know, in high school, I was doing 30, 35 miles a week. Um, I wasn't as I said, I wasn't like a um, obsessive runner and that I had to get my morning run in every day. I sort of went to practice and did what was required. Um, so it was definitely a big transition. And um, freshman year, um, I quickly, you know, realized that I wasn't hitting, you know, the times and the uh, delivering what I had in high school. It didn't come as easy. You know, I put on my freshman 15, um, you know, all those, all those hard things that come with freshman year in that transition definitely hit me pretty hard. Um, and, um, I struggled and, um, yeah, so freshman, freshman year, um, you know, I went to practice. I obviously got in my runs with my teammates, but just didn't have that extra umph or extra commitment, um, needed to really excel. So when your connection to sport is, is, is basically laid in the foundation of success as opposed to love for the sport, what happens when the success doesn't arrive? Oh, it's rough. It's rough. <laughs> it's rough. And, I, um, and that's why I only, unfortunately, lasted um, two years in, at Brown for running. Um, obviously, I stayed academically for my four years, but after two years, I, um, I think it was after winter of my sophomore year, I had enough. I was sort of like, I don't, you know, I had injuries. I wasn't hitting high school times. Um, 
I was trying all these different changes, trying to do what I had done in high school. My high school coach was sending work out. There was all, you know, all these things really trying to make it work and it just wasn't clicking. And um, at that point, I remember I wrote a letter to my teammates. I met with my coach and um, I just basically decided I'm like, I'm not willing to, you know, be on the bike for the next two years or I just don't want to do this and be so, you know, disappointed with myself every single day. Um, there's so much, you know, Brown's an amazing school and I had an amazing um, opportunity to be there and I wanted to take advantage of those other things um, that it had to offer. Um, so I left the team, which was hard because all my friends were on the team. Um, and I recommitted myself to my future and career. And I wanted to be a writer and a journalist. So I you know, started writing for the paper and sports magazines and working at the radio stations and doing anything I could to sort of find a new identity. Because it's hard when you, you know, identify yourself as a, um, as a top runner, as, you know, top runner in the state or in my school or whatever it was for so long. And then that identity is just taken away and you, you have to find something else or you're going to just, you know, you're just going to, it's going to be tough for a while. It'll flail. So what, what drew you into staying connected with sports in general? Um, I just, I mean, I loved, um, I love sports. I mean, I love the human interest story of it. I think there's nothing like that, um, you know, goal setting and want and desire and the failure and the success and, you know, the emotion of that. So I knew I wanted to be involved in it. Um, so I, you know, stayed involved as much as I could in terms of reporting on it. And, and, and I, considered my it was a weird thing because I still considered myself an athlete I mean that's how I that's who I who I built my identity as being um so to stay close maybe a little bit on the outside of it but close was important to me um so I was able to you know semi do it do that by writing for the different sports teams in the paper so after the winter of your sophomore year and then up until the point where you get back into running, we'll talk about that later. What did you do with that competitive fire that you described earlier? How did, were you able to just, you know, keep that under a rug somewhere or did it come out in other ways? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I, it was, I would say it was a tough, um, a tough, you know, 10 years in between that 2001 you know, when I stopped competitively running to 2001 to probably 2011, it was, you know, like I would go back and forth into it. Um, I would, you know, train with a friend for a little bit, um, you know, sort of half doing it um, or run with them as much as I could and fit it in. Um, but it was, it was definitely something that was missing from my life for a long period in there. Um, and I don't know that I really found a substitute for it. I mean, I really, I did dive deep into, um, into writing and to, um, you know, the newspaper and that kind of stuff. I remember at my, my senior year, um, right before graduation, the coach of the cross country team, he actually, you know, had me come to their end of year banquet and said, you know, you know, usually when people stop running, they just disappear and stuff. And I really have to say, Melissa figured out a way to, you know, give back to the school, even though it wasn't through running, it was through something else. So I, I definitely, you know, jumped in deep with my interests, but, um, 
you know, that competitive part of me was definitely um, searching for an outlet for a good decade there, probably. <laughs> and post-college, most college athletes, you know, whether they were four-year athletes or not, usually get to the point where they struggle with, okay, I want to be an active person, but I don't know how to do this halfway, right? I don't know how to like, only like, instead of you know being active versus being a competitor, right? I think it's a yeah. difference. It's a differentiator in how to, how to do that and how to basically be, and how to view viewing, how to view being active. There we go. As something that's worthy of a full-time ish effort. So, did you get to that point during the, you know, your, your early 20s? I didn't. Um, and it was really hard because it was like, I can't just, you know, I can't jump in a 5K and just jog it. Like, people are going to see my times. Like, it, you know, it, all those things play with your head when you were formerly, you know, super competitive. Um, you know, it must we, just be hysterical to, to look at yourself now, like, thinking that. Like, as if anybody really cared. I know. I <laughs> know. <laughs> exactly. And then also like the fact that, you know, you exercise just to exercise, like just to stay in shape. It was just, you know, I was afraid to jump on the track for so long because it brought back memories of like, you know, what I used to have. It was, you know, I definitely will say I had a good 10 years in there of struggling with that, you know, really believing that running was running was some competitively running competitively was from my past and I would never have that again. Um, that my best times, my best years were behind me. And you never want to be, you know, like the, um, you know, the married with children dad who, you know, thinks of his college days or high school days of football as the best, you know, years of his life. Um, but, you know, for a long time, I thought that that was it. Like I hit my peak in, in high school and, you know, I would never reach that again. Um, so it was tough. And I would like every once in a while, you know, I'd find a friend that we'd start training for a 5k for or like someone at work, you know, I was working a lot of hours in those years, um, a corporate job. So I would fit it in, you know, for a couple of weeks or a couple of months before work, I would meet someone, but it was never consistent. It was never like part of my daily routine. It was I was meeting them because we were working towards XYZ. Um, and it just was a side thing on my life. And it was, for me, I give, when I do things, I like to give 100% or 110% when they're really important. And it's hard for me to go 50% with something. Um, and I found that for a number of years that I would be like, yeah, I'm training for this sort of, but it was like 50%. And then, you know, you, you abandon it on the side. So you're at the point where you know, you're kind of like, kind of running occasionally, right? You're like one of those like, okay, I want to make sure that I'm fairly active. I don't want to just like be going from couch to work, work to couch, right? The whole like basically the for five days a week, or even if you're working on weekends. And I and I did a little bit of that. <laughs> yeah, I think we all have that's for sure. So what changed? I mean, what what was the moment, or what were the circumstances where you know here you are a marathoner now? So you know, spoiler alert: this wasn't always the story. So what? changed your mindset regarding getting into running more seriously? Sure. So in um, 2008, um, I lost my mom to stage four breast cancer. And at that point, I was like working 60 hours a week in the corporate job and still couldn't find that like that's something that meant a lot. And I was struggling of how to deal with it. Um, and then with her death of struggling, how to, you know, it was just a lot of emotion going on. Um, so in that process, I started 
reaching out to um, my coach from high school who had coached me, who was still coaching and I was still in the area and um, started running with the team. So I would run during the summers. I would come out while they had summer practice and use that as a little bit of an outlet, as a consistent outlet. Then fast forward um, a couple of more years in 2011, I quit my corporate job, which was, you know, that 60 hour a week type thing where, which made running consistently hard um, for me. And I started my own um, company, a PR agency. And with that flexibility of starting your own, you know, company where hours are sort of random, um, I went back to my high school coach and I was like, hey, I want to do this more consistently. Like, can I coach? And he said, yes, as long as you run with the team. And I was like, all right, well, I have to get in shape for this. <laughs> so I, you know, made it my mission that summer leading up, it was 2011 fall, um, that I was going to be ready and in shape to actually run with the high school cross country team, girls and boys. And I did that. And that sort of got my butt back into shape really fast. And then I had a schedule. I had my, you know, I was running with them five days a week. I had to run on the weekend so that I was prepared. I was, you know, mentoring them and telling them to run on the weekend. So I better be. And it really brought me back into that regular committed schedule. And I just got in shape like in a hurry. And then it's all of a sudden like it feeds on itself where you're like, wait a second, I still can do this. And um, that's when, um, so from 2011, I started running regularly and um, I added a couple of half marathons here and there in there um, that I would, I think my first one was like a 138. Um, so I was like, all right, well, this is, you know, a little bit of training under my belt. I did this. Let's see if I can get faster. Um, and then Fast forward to 2013, um, I applied to run for the Maccabi Games, which are like the Jewish Olympics held in um, Israel every four years. And they were going to be summer of 2013. I had competed in them when I was a kid at age 15 in um, the 1997 ones. Um, so I was really excited to apply to be able to maybe compete again because um, I didn't think I was good enough um, the years in between. and. Um, I made the team and then I start, that was my next goal that I started training really hard for that one. Um, and then I dropped my half down to 129.30 in 2013 for that one. Um, and then from there, you know, it sort of, that was the new me that I was now a half marathoner. So why was running with the team a precondition of your employment for being a cross country coach? Um, because he was the coach, you know, he wrote the workouts and I think he just wanted to have that, um, what could I add to the group besides mentoring for having been through, you know, their experience and, and being a former high school runner at that specific high school. I think he just wanted me to add something else to them and, um, you know, make sure they were also running out there and not, you know, going out on five mile runs and hiding in the bushes. I think that was another thing, like just, you know, <laughs> be out there and make sure that they're running and, um, and that's what you can add to it so that, you know, we're not just all standing around um, telling them what to do and then just watching them go. So you had a lot going on there because you had not only the passing of your mother, but then you also leaving a corporate job to start your own firm. Shoot, that's a huge stress, right? I mean, even yeah. if you have clients lined up, like, you know how fast things can go south and you want to make sure it works out well. And even if like you're never in you know jeopardy of losing your business, 
you know, you obviously have, have goals that you want to accomplish. So what was running, you know, how did running settle you in during both of those times, not only about getting in shape, but how did it affect you mentally and emotionally? I think, I mean, running, it brings, it just brings joy and a, a something I can commit myself to, commit myself to fully. And that's definitely where like the change happens of the maturity and being able to really understand that if I want to be good at it, I got to put in the time. I have to love it. I have to, you know, believe in myself through it. And um, it was different than when I had run in high school and college. Um, it was a different level of commitment to it um, because it brought me joy. It gave me something to focus on, um, you know, some things to control um, and that whatever you put into it is what you're going to get out of it. So it was, I mean, it was my like crutch during that time of my consistency and, um, and mental and physical health. And why did you end up gravitating more towards the half marathon, marathon distances, as opposed to the shorter stuff, which is kind of more in line with your past, as you mentioned, like, you know, you didn't really enjoy the longer stuff. You kind of more enjoyed like the track stuff when you were in high school and really at your peak. So why not, why not just focus on kind of the 5k 10k range since it's probably what you were running even with the high school kids yeah you're right um i think when i applied for that um to run the half marathon in the maccabi games i wasn't i knew i wasn't good enough to run in the on the track like i was like i don't have that speed anymore they're running you know like 16 minute and 17 minute 5ks i can't do that um so i was like i think I thought it would be a little less competitive or easier to get into the half marathon world. Um, and it's funny, I stuck with the half marathon for a number of years. I mean, from 2000, it was from 2012, I guess it was, to 2018, only doing half marathons because I believed that I wouldn't be good enough at the full marathon. Because I was like, I, I, if I do this, I want to be competitive at it. And I think I have a chance to, you know, finish top three or win half marathon races locally here in Florida. Um, so why would I jump into a full marathon where I wouldn't be competitive enough? So it's sort of the, um, again, it goes back to that. I really um, thrive on being competitive in these races and being able to win, giving myself a chance. So I just thought I had more of a chance there to, um, to do well and to compete. The competitive streak was back, baby. I it know, was coming it out, was. And you're like, all right, half <laughs> marathon, here we come. And obviously it was working well for you. That's for sure. So you then you you ultimately make, you know, you you take the plunge and you run your first marathon. You run a 309, which is again a great time for any for you know for, for so many people. For a first time marathoner, it's a fantastic time. Yet Obviously, that's not at the level of like, all right, I want to finish top three in a race at the vast majority of marathons. So what brought you to, all right, I ran, I ran this race. I finally did it. I finally kind of went for it. It was good. Obviously, I'm not going to like be winning the Chicago Marathon here. I'm still super competitive. Why go back? Why did you choose to stay with the marathon post-2018? So... um when I decided to do the marathon, I wouldn't let my I wouldn't let myself do it until I knew that I could 
run to our runs and enjoy them. Um, so in 2017, um, I re- I still didn't think I was ever going to do that full marathon because I was like, it's just too long for me. Um, then my boyfriend, Mark, ran the New York City Marathon um, in 2017. And I was like, okay, well, if you know, this experience is pretty cool. And I met Shalane there after and I was like, all right, like this, maybe I could get into this. So then I was like, I think I'm ready to go for the full. So um, I have a coach that I work with, um, Leah Rosenfeld, who's also a user of Prevenex and she's a professional runner for Under Armour. She coaches me um, virtually. And I was like, I'm ready to do the full. So she wrote up a training plan, et cetera. And then I did that one, just trying to get my feet wet and and feeling the distance and having confidence in myself that I could finish it at that point. Um, Because we didn't do super long training. I mean, I only got up to like 20 miles once. Um, So it was more like, I need the confidence that I'll be able to do this and finish strong. Um, That race was like a huge negative split. So I was like, Uh, I think it was like 137 and then 132. So I was like, all right, I know, I know I can do this and I know I felt good and I can go faster than I did. And, um, she just, you know, kept on upping the training. The mileage will go up a little bit. Um, I just was building on another, you know, training cycle and, um, adding different components and I started getting faster. And then, you know, so Boston, I ran the three hour, um, flat three hours and nine seconds. So, um, my goal on that one was to break three hours. Um, so it was, um, it was, you know, frustrating for a moment at the end, or it stung, I should say, that I missed it by nine seconds. But I knew it was just, you know, one more training cycle I needed and my times would keep dropping because I just felt like the click had happened. Like my my talent that I had was back and I just needed to keep up the consistency of the work. And with the added, you know, mental maturity of being able to put in those hours of long runs and workouts and and not missing them no matter what, um, I knew my times were going to drop and I, and I still do. I still have that confidence. All right. There's so much stuff there. First of all, <laughs> what's your perspective on setting big time goals for the Boston Marathon? Because on some level, it feels like it can be a fool's errand because there's so many variables that you can't account for. And it's this big race. And obviously, like when people who run it, it's a lifetime goal to just be there in the first place. You can only run so many marathons in a year. So it's hard to just look at a marathon and say, no goals, just going to go have fun especially if you're really, really fit. So what's your perspective on, you know, again, as a coach too, about setting these big goals at a race, which is so hard to predict the things that could influence your running beyond just your fitness? Yeah, I, I mean, especially coming from Florida where there are like no hills. So, you know, Boston's known as a hilly course. Um, so I, I think because I was so new to the marathon, I just wasn't putting anything, you know, I wasn't putting anything off limits. I was like, listen, you're going to get better. No matter if you keep working at something, you're going to improve. Um, if you add different elements, you know, I added more strength training. I added, you know, um, later on, you know, I added the Prevenex. Um, you add these different things, you're going to improve, you know, adding stretching or whatever it is. Um, so I went in with the confidence that I was stronger than I was when I had run the 309, um, you know, half a year earlier um, or almost a year earlier. So I just came in with that and, you know, stuck to my guns of, of knowing what I 
you know, had the potential to do. Um, I also, you know, we started off the conversation with going after those 245s for the Olympic trial qualifiers or the 219 if you're a guy. Um, I don't, I, I have never gone into a race with those time goals of like exactly X, Y, Z. It's more like, okay, I want to hit this, but I'm going to go by feel. And I feel like I have been, even though I took off that 10 year break, I know my body pretty well on feel and races and I know what I can continue doing and what is a stretch. So I just, you know, kind of went into Boston with a goal and, um, I wanted to break that three hours, but I was also going to listen to my body. And that kept me sort of in line with it. Um, I did miss it at the end, but I was, you know, my, my time was pretty consistent, um, first half, second half. Um, and I think for anyone, like you just got to know yourself. I mean, don't throw out crazy goals that you haven't trained for, but if you, if you've trained for them and if you're building off a past result and you know that you're, you can feel it within yourself that you've physically done more this time and mentally done more, um, then you should have the confidence that no matter what that, you know, that course is or whatever, that you're going to, you're going to compete well on it and, um, and do, and do well. And how has your training changed in the past two years as you've, as you've transitioned to the marathon and really become more comfortable and enjoying your, your two-plus-hour-long runs? Yeah, so um, leading to, I guess, each time Leah has upped my mileage a little bit, like leading up to Boston, I think my um, I had five 60-mile weeks um, and the rest were 50 mile weeks or lower. Um, I think I only reached 66 miles per week once. Um, and then fast forward to CIM, my highest was 76 miles per week. And I had, you know, four 70 mile weeks and, um, six 60 mile weeks. So definitely the, the distance per week has gone up. Um, the other, uh, my, my, the speed that's required in my workouts, um, has obviously been faster. Um, and then the other things is I added strength. Um, so I got really good about twice a week going to a sort of like a boot camp type class. Um, it's called slash fitness down here. And that increased my core strength, my leg strength, which helps with the hills. Um, I am really good about recovery. I mean, everyone that knows me knows that I, you know, the weekly massages leading up to a race, I go for acupuncture the second, I mean, as I said, I'm 37 years old. I'm not like super young anymore. So things, if how they hurt, dare I'm you, a- Melissa, how <laughs> dare you as someone who's roughly your age, how do you, how do you justify saying that about our ages? We just have to be better about recovery. Um, and just more experienced. That's all I like to say. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So just, you know, I'm in with my chiropractor. I'm doing compression boots. Um, I'm doing acupuncture. I'm just really good about getting my, you know, eight to 10 hours of sleep, um, you know, as needed. And, um, and then the, other piece was the Prevenix that I added. So I do that optimal health pack every day. And, um, I really think that's helped with recovery. I mean, there, I I will say after my CIM, um, where I ran the 249, I felt fine the day after. I mean, I've never felt like that after a marathon. Um, so I just, I don't know what else to attribute it to other than, you know, the, the change in the supplements and, um, and just being more prepared for it. Yeah. And when you talk about doing like the body boot camp stuff, that's something that 
for a lot of people, it's hard to figure out how to put that in because there's the way to lift and, you know, get stronger where it's a little bit more, um, you know, not basically it's, you know, it's not a high intensity workout, right? It's like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to focus on these muscle groups and here are my exercises, but it's not a workout per se. It's just getting stronger. And that's oftentimes how I've done it as well. And when, you know, especially for you, someone who's training at a pretty high level at this point, I mean, my goodness, how do you and Leah work that into your schedule so that not only is it, you know, beneficial from a strength standpoint, but that it's not necessarily taking away from either your recovery from or preparation for workouts? Yeah. And I, I mean, a lot of that is listening to my body again of knowing it and when I'm tired and, you know, pulling back or not taking a class if I am. Um, yeah, it's a lot of calisthenics. It's a lot of, you know, jumping around, which is good for the, you know, the overall fitness level, but um, they are tiring sometimes. Um, I just think it's fit in well because I enjoy it and I can push myself um, in that environment of that boot camp class environment more. Um, for some reason, you know, running, I train alone and I can do that and push myself to the limit easily alone. But in lifting, you know, when I just go to the gym and I have an assignment of, you know, 10 reps of XYZ, it never gets to the level that I'm going to push myself in one of those boot, cl- boot camp classes. And I think there's something to be said about, you know, pushing yourself, um, to a level that you wouldn't alone, you wouldn't do alone and enjoying it and, um, you know, having fun with it. So it doesn't feel like such a, you know, it doesn't feel like I'm lifting in there, but I'm coming out a lot stronger than when I went in. Yeah. And I think what you just mentioned about enjoying it is so key because, right, you have a lot of people who want to get better at running and basically everything becomes very running centric. Like, okay, Everything that I'm doing out, you know, athletically needs to improve my running and be part of some disciplined plan, which makes perfect sense. There's no, there isn't fault in that logic on any level, but there are certain things that people just like doing, right? Like I work with some runners who just love doing Orange Theory. They just love it. So I'm always, you know, torn between, okay, obviously we just, we can't have, you know, if you really want to get better at running, you know, having Orange Theory as like the crux of your week weekly work is not going to get you where you want to be. But that also doesn't necessarily mean that you take it away either. And just kind of finding that balance and also maybe being seasonal with it. So maybe during certain parts of the year, you do more than others and things like that. Because exactly. I feel like there's, 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 there's a balance there, but it's not some part, something that you can just like tell someone to do, right? I feel like there's a lot of kind of give and take and there's a lot of self-analysis that have to kind of come with it. Oh, 100% and listening to your body. I used to do Orange Theory and I, when my running got to the point where I was doing like doubles some days and I was like, well, half the class of, of Orange Theory is running. So like, I can't do more of it in there unless I'm going to like waste that half hour and just jog it. So, or I can go on the bike. So then I was like, okay, I need to transition to something that will give me a full hour of the lifting. And, you know, if I'm like, you know, jogging around or doing it fast, that's okay. So, I mean, that was the transition that worked for me. Um, But uh, you know, it, yeah, you want to enjoy it. It has to fit in and it can't tire you out. And I always make sure that I get my workouts in first. I'm not like going to my, you know, boot camp class and then and half-assing a, you know, workout right after. So you just have to make sure your priorities are always there. Yeah, that's a good point. Definitely in terms of like the order of events. And I think also figuring out what works for you, right? You go to these classes 
that can be again whether you're doing like the, the you know orange theory or some of these these other classes like that can be cost prohibitive for some people but there's plenty of like high intensity workouts that you can do without weights and basically just having like a smartphone to look at YouTube and find out really good workouts but figuring out ways where you know you're just not going to you don't want to you want to go into a workout day and be like I'm tired from that high intensity interval workout I did. Exactly. Right? Like you want it to to complement what you're doing, not, you know, I guess you know not not basically be a be a substitute for what would might be a a more useful way of doing a workout that's going to help your running and just finding I guess on some level just you know deciding what you want, right? Cuz as long as you're aware of that you're making a decision and there's some opportunity cost potentially that's not a negative as long as you're aware of the opportunity cost. And okay with it. And also for someone like me who's, you know, super competitive, I have to make sure I'm not going into my boot camp class and getting competitive with the person next to me because I want to lift more than them or do this faster. Like at the end of the day, my priority is to be a faster marathoner and a stronger marathoner, not to, you know, lift five times faster than the person I've never met, you know, or I'll never see again next to me in a boot camp class. So you just I I have to check myself all the time and be like, okay, you know, this is for running and this is for my marathon. So what do I need today? And if this is too much, I need to pull back. All right. So what what do you say to ex-college athletes who, you know, want to get back into athletics, but either are, you know, worried that like it's just not going to be serious enough for them or worried conversely that you know, they're just like, there's almost a waste because they're not going to be as good in the sport they're picking up or re-picking up in your case as they once were in their dedicated previous self. Like what, what advice do you give to those people or would you give to those people if approached? Yeah. I mean, I say that it's never too late to go after your dreams. I mean, never believe that your best is behind you. There's always a way to, you know, find something new that will inspire you, that will trigger you, that will demand the best out of you and just keep searching for it. I mean, it took me a long time to find it. And then when you find it, you'll be reminded of that, you know, competitiveness and that love and passion for it that you felt. Um, I I thought for a very, very long time that my best years of running and racing were behind me and, um, you know, would think back to that and talk about them, like, you know, and, and remember and, you know, really look at those fo- with fond memories as the best times. And um, now at, you know, 37, I am 100% confident that my best racing is ahead of me. I mean, I... If I could have told my college self when I thought I was just, my competitive years were done, I could never get to hang on, you know, like a little longer um, because, you know, in the future, you could be four minutes away from an Olympic trials qualifier time for the marathon. Like, I, I would do anything in the world to be able to tell myself that, that, you know, you never know when you put in the effort and the time. And if you really want it, find it, it's worth it. I love it. What a great way to end. Melissa, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. 
Melissa, thank you for coming on the show. This was a lot of fun. Also, thank you to our sponsors, TuneUp CBD and Prevenex. Obviously, Melissa talked about Prevenex a little bit on this podcast. You can go check them out, tuneupcbd.com and prevenex.com. TuneUp CBD, the code is rambling. And on prevenex.com, the code is runner15. But you don't need to remember that. Anytime you hear me give a code in this podcast or any podcast, you can find that in the show notes with links to the websites. So always go check them out. I want to say thank you to a couple new, um, not, not to them personally, but thank we've had a, um, quite a few new Patreon supporters recently. Boy, was that an awkward sentence. But I am really appreciative of everyone who's supporting the show on Patreon. It does mean a lot. It really, really does. Things have been going so great with this podcast. And I just want to do more and more of it and do it better. That's for sure. So I appreciate all the support there. You go to patreon.com slash rambling runner or just Google it. It's always the other way of doing it. So thank you so much for listening. It's always a treat to bring you these wonderful conversations. So have a great day and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of InPost Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Yeah. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest of states these days. This representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry.